to 38. Again, you can turn in your Bible to Acts 20, and we'll be reading verses 17 to 38. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold... I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and inflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God." And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood." I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified." I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know these hands ministered to, that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome again to Holy Trinity Church. I'm Sully. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and I would be delighted to take you out for dessert sometime, so just let me know. Well, uh, today uh, I get the privilege of preaching, and you've probably heard me say a few times already this summer that we are allowing Pastor John a couple of weeks away from the pulpit for prayer, for planning, for some rest. Um, and that is great, but it also allows us to embody one of our values here at the church. We have uh, seven values, and one of our values is the centrality of the word. And so when we gather here on Sundays, no matter who it is who is uh, up here in the pulpit, we have come to hear God's word. It's not a preacher that is central, but God's word that is central. So I hope you have your Bibles open in front of you, or if you have, uh, pull it open on, on electri- uh, le- your phone or an iPad or whatever you have with you. Uh, but we have the privilege of, of hearing from the word today. So before we begin, let me ask the Lord for his help. Let's pray. Gracious and loving Father, we come before you today because you, Lord, have, a, 
have purchased us. You have obtained us by your blood. So, Father, I pray today that your word, which is life to us, Lord, that we would hear it, that you would speak to us through the book of Acts. Lord, we believe that the word is sufficient to build us up and to give us the inheritance among those who are sanctified. So, Father, we are your church, and we've come to hear from you. So make us more like your son, holy and righteous and beautiful. Father, I pray that you would help me now, that I would speak only that which is profitable and faithful to the gospel of grace. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, our, our text today is about a goodbye. And I don't know if you are from the Midwest or not, but there's a thing called the Midwestern goodbye. If you're familiar with it or if you're not familiar with it, let me share a little bit about it. It's a multi-tiered, multi-phased goodbye. You usually start off about an hour before you actually need to leave somewhere by saying, well, it's about time for me to get going. That always leads into a first round of hugs. That's then you know, a slow walk to the door where you have another conversation, have a second round of hugs, then you leave, but don't forget to drive, you know, pull around and drive by again, honk your horn and wave out the window to say goodbye for the third or fifth time. I don't know why we draw out goodbyes sometimes. They're never easy. They're never very fun. There's a, a great poem by a, a man named C- Cecil de Lewis, who was a poet laureate in uh, England from 1968 to 1972. You, he's probably more famous, though, for being the father of, of Daniel de Lewis, the famous actor. And he was a, a poet that wrote this poem called Walking Away. And it's a poem that kind of articulates the, both the heartache of saying goodbye, but also sometimes the necessities of goodbyes. In this poem, he is addressing his son, who is growing up and is leaving. And he's reminiscing in this poem about the first time he saw his son play soccer and then at the end of the game, instead of coming back to him, went off with his friends. And he felt as if it was like his son was this satellite being wrenched from its orbit. The the poem ends this way, speaking about leaving his son. It says, I have had worse partings, but none that so gnaws at my mind still. Perhaps it roughly is saying what God alone could perfectly show, how selfhood begins with a walking away, and love is proved in the letting go. It's a poem that I believe just beautifully articulates just the sadness and sorrow that one can have in a goodbye. But also at the same time, goodbyes are sometimes necessary. I would say that probably some of the hardest goodbyes I've had to endure have been with those who have been here at Holy Trinity who have walked with me, who have, who have uh, shared burdens together, and who have had to leave Chicago. There is great sorrow when we part, great heartache, but sometimes it's necessary for the sake of the gospel. Today's text, as I just mentioned a few moments ago, is one of those sorrowful goodbyes between Paul and the elders of Ephesus. The text, you can't help but as you're reading it, feel the love that, that is between these men. The mention of tears and an embracing. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where it's a, maybe a special intimate moment between other people and you feel privileged to be there, but also feel maybe a little awkward that you're there because it's such a special moment. I feel like Luke, the author, is kind of pulling us close into this special moment between Paul and the elders of Ephesus and allowing us to hear the farewell address that Paul gives to these elders. Like a graduation speech, Paul has one last opportunity to teach and to encourage the elders. And so in this message that he gives, his parting words, he exhorts the elders of of Ephesus to stay the course, to be diligent, to, to stay focused. 
Today, if I could summarize our message for us as simply as I could, I'd, I'd say it in four words. Gospel focus requires goodbyes. What I mean by that is that if we are going to be faithful followers of Jesus who are focused, it's going to take the discipline to sometimes let go, to give away, to say goodbye. Today, we're going to look at our text kind of in two major uh, movements. The, the first half of Paul's farewell address is him talking about what gospel focus looks like for him. And then he turns in the second half of his address to discuss what gospel focus is going to look like for the elders of Ephesus. So again, we're going to break the passage into those two sections. Let me begin by setting the scene a little bit for us. This encounter between Paul and the elders takes place in a city called Miletus. Paul has been on a missionary journey, and he's felt a sense from the Holy Spirit that he needs to get back to Jerusalem. So he is on his journey back and feels like he's trying to get there as quickly as he can. And so he passes by Ephesus, but his boat docks at a city that is just south of Ephesus in Miletus. And there he calls for the elders of Ephesus to come meet him. You know, it's probably a couple days' journey between Ephesus and Miletus. And, and so in that time, Paul had a little bit of time to think about what it was he wanted to say, what it is he wanted to send to the, or say to the elders. Well, this time between the elders arriving and Paul being able to give this farewell address, the elders of Ephesus probably were wondering, what, what is it that Paul is going to share with us? What is it that he wants to tell us? What is so urgent that we need to come and speak to him? Paul knew that this would have been the last time he had to speak to them. And so look with me at verse 18. This is what he says when they arrive. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in the public and from house to house testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. When you say goodbye to someone, sometimes it's uh, an opportunity to reminisce and think back on maybe stories or things that happened together. Paul begins his farewell address a little bit reminiscing, thinking back on the time that he had spent with them. And he says, you all know how I lived among you. From the very first day that I stepped foot in Asia, I lived a life that was dedicated to serving the Lord. He tells them, he reminds them that he served the Lord through trials and tears and terror. There were plots against his life, and yet he wouldn't let anything stop him from serving the Lord. There was a consistency to Paul's life and ministry amongst the church in Ephesus. No matter where he was, no matter who he was speaking to, he spoke the same message. He lived the same way. He actually mentions what it was that he taught, where he taught, and who he taught. What it was that he taught, he says he taught them all that was profitable. He taught them the the gospel of grace, of repentance toward God. Where did he teach? He says he taught them in the public spaces, but also from house to house. He also says that he taught both Jews and Gentiles. There was a consistency to what he did and how he lived his life. You might say that there was a, a singularity of purpose to Paul's life. He knew what it was he was meant to do. He knew why he had breath in his lungs, and he knew what he wanted to do with his life. He had purpose. That's probably a longing that a lot of us share, a desire for there to be a sense of meaning to our life, a sense of clear purpose to our everyday. A popular book you may have heard about, it was written back, I think, in 2002 by Rick Warren called The Purpose Driven Life. It 
It was a small little book that just kind of asked the question, why are we here? And it was written by a pastor, and yet this book sold millions of copies. It was incredibly popular. It was just one sign that there's this longing within us all for meaning and purpose. I think that if you're asking the question, you know, how do I have a life that has such focus to it, such, such purpose to it, I think we can learn a lesson from Paul. I think Paul understood that to understand his purpose in life, he needed to, to realize that he wasn't the center of the story. You and I are not the center of the story. Rather, we, though, sometimes like to try to play God and try to determine for ourselves what is our purpose in life. As you can imagine, what most often happens when we do this is we begin to think that the greatest purpose in life is kind of our own self-satisfaction, our own comfort, our own wealth, our own happiness. Personal happiness and comfort and wealth become the overall objective to our lives. And the problem with this is that we weren't created for this purpose. We weren't created to live that way. Scripture actually gives a, a term for this. It, Bible, the Bible calls this idolatry, when we worship ourselves rather than God. And we find ourselves feeling let down by our purposes that we try to seek after. For Paul, his purpose in his life came about when he stopped trying to define it for himself but began to listen to the Lord. He says to the church in Ephesus, I taught you repentance to turn to the Lord. And he says that forever, for anyone who turns and repents and turns to the Lord, well, they, don't only, they not only find hope and forgiveness and life, but they also find meaning and purpose. For those who repent and turn to the Lord, turning from our idolatry to the Lord, we find a life worth living. And not only that, not only do we find a life worth living, but we find a purpose that's actually worth dying for. That's really where Paul takes us in his address. He begins to talk about the way he views his own life. Paul moves from talking about the past, uh, the how gospel focus looked for him in the past, and he begins to turn the corner and begin to talk about what it's going to look like for him moving forward. Take a look with me at verse 22. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord, Jesus Christ, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. The Holy Spirit has made it clear to Paul that he is meant to go to Jerusalem. He is meant to go there, and yet when he gets there, imprisonment and affliction await him. We've kind of already pointed this out, that there's this parallel or this mirroring that happens in the book of Acts to the gospel of Luke. Luke is the author of both, and a major turning point in the Gospel of Luke is when Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem, where he knows the cross awaits him. So it is here with Paul. He is setting his face towards Jerusalem, knowing that suffering awaits him. And yet, he is so determined to live out the, the course that God has set before him that he sets his life aside and doesn't let anything stop him. There's this strange phenomenon that happens here in Chicago every October. Thousands of people have a ridiculous idea to come here and run 26 miles. The Chicago Marathon happens, and thousands and thousands of people come. And Running this, this marathon can be hard on the body. It can be exhausting. Some won't finish it. Some, won't, some will get hurt in doing it. But the joy and the satisfaction, the sense of accomplishment that one has when you finish a marathon, I, well, I don't know, but I'm sure it is amazing. 
We all know that that joy or that satisfaction has got to last for a couple of, of days, at least a couple, maybe a couple of weeks. We all know the people who walk around for like the month afterwards carrying around their medal uh, so that we all know that they finished the race. The joy and the satisfaction, though, of, of accomplishing something like a marathon is but a shadow of the joy and the satisfaction we will have when we finish the course that God has set before us. Marathon runners know that getting to the finish line takes incredible determination, incredible focus. And Paul is so focused that he, is, he says that he's willing to set his life aside. The thing that most of us would think is the most precious thing we have in order to accomplish it, in order to get to the finish line. I'll put it this way. Paul is willing to say goodbye to his own life for the sake of the gospel. Gospel focus requires goodbyes. To finish the course that has been set before you, the ministry that God has given you will require of you to say goodbye to some things, to set aside some things that you hold tightly to. I want to get practical for a moment and speak to what what this might actually look like for you. What is it that is hindering you from accomplishing what God has called you to do? Parents, you are called to disciple your children, to raise them up in the way of the Lord. What's hindering you from doing that? Is it work? Is it work? Might you need to say goodbye to that next promotion? Or maybe it's simply saying goodbye at the end of the day a little sooner so you can get home and be with your kids. Is social media seeking after followers distracting you from being a follower of Jesus? Do you need to say goodbye to social media for the sake of the gospel? What's keeping you from sharing the gospel with your neighbors, your coworkers? Is is it the expectation that people are going to think a certain way of you? Do you need to say goodbye to the reputation that you hold too closely? What's keeping you from pursuing the Lord in prayer and scripture reading? Is it the expectation that you deserve eight to nine hours of sleep a night? I don't know what it might be for you, but if you have not had to say goodbye to something for the sake of the gospel, I might wonder if you really truly know the value of the gospel. Because in the gospel, Like I said, we find not only forgiveness and hope and life, but we find meaning and purpose. And that meaning and purpose that we receive in the gospel is worth giving away everything. I want to keep moving in our text here. And in verse 25, Paul says explicitly what it is that he has to say goodbye to. It's the elders in Ephesus, men that he has loved, that many of them have actually said that probably have come to know the Lord through his ministry. Verse 25, he says, And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. There's this kind of shift that happens. I said that Paul is first begins to speak about the things that, that he and the elders of Ephesus can remember, the things they knew together, but now the pronouns begin to shift. And he begins to talk about things that the Holy Spirit has revealed to him. That this would be the last time that they would be face-to-face together. I believe that there are some among us today who, like Paul, will have to say goodbye to loved ones for the sake of the gospel. I think this might actually look like uh, two different things. First, I hope and I pray that there are some among us who actually might feel the sense of calling to leave Chicago and go and become global ministry partners. What a joy it would be to see another wave of of global ministry partners to be sent out from our congregation. If that is something that you might slightly be interested in or want help discerning, I would love to talk to you about that. Or maybe even email missions at hgcchicago.org and one of our missions uh, team members would love to talk to you about that. 
But there's others of you, though, that I think have come here to Chicago, maybe for a season of life, for school, maybe it's just for a time for work and you have plans to move back to friends and family somewhere else. Might the Lord be calling you to say goodbye to those plans in order to stay here in Chicago, to ensure that a gospel-preaching church might continue here in the center of the city for decades to come? I don't know what it might look like for you, but I believe that if you are to remain focused on the gospel, there are things that you need to say goodbye to. In the text, we move from what Paul is, says was what it looks like for him to stay focused on the gospel to begin talking about what it looks like for the elders of Ephesus to stay focused on the gospel. And no surprise, what he says to the elders in these parting words, his final exhortation to them, is stay the course, stay alert, stay focused. Again, look back at the text, verse 28. He says to them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you and not, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Two strong imperatives come across right here in this text. To the elders of Ephesus, he says that he wants them to stay, uh, to pay careful attention to themselves and to the flock. That's in verse 28. And then verse 30, he says, therefore, be alert. Vigilance in the Christian life isn't a, uh, an option. It's a necessity. Paul actually gives a couple of very specific reasons why the elders of Ephesus need to stay vigilant. Let me point those out to you. First, notice how he emphasizes the value of the church. He says in verse 28, to pay careful attention to, the, to yourself and to all the flock. And then hear this, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. The church that of God was obtained with no small price. It was obtained with the very blood of the Son of God. Something that is so valuable needs to be guarded well. A precious diamond deserves to be protected and guarded well. And so he tells the elders of Ephesus, this cherished, this precious church deserves your careful attention, your hypervigilance. But secondly, the imperatives that he gives are also motivated by the fact that there's, there's a threat against the church, both from outside and inside. He says that they're picking up with that imagery of shepherding. He says there are these fierce wolves that are going to come, not sparing anyone, seeking to devour the sheep. And so he says, you need to be alert. But he also says, you got to watch out because there are maybe even some among yourselves who will stand up and speak twisted things, leading people astray. Paul, in these final words, these parting words, is kind of like a general, speaking directives to the troops. On the eve of the invasion of Normandy, D-Day, in World War II, Dwight D. Eisenhower wrote at an address to the, uh, to the, to the Allied forces gathered in southern England the night before uh, the beginning of that great battle. The troops were on the verge of a great battle in which many would pay the great cost of their own lives. This is what he wrote to them. He said, soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Forces, you are, not, you are about to embark upon the great crusade, which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hope and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. 
in company with our brave allies and brothers in arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed people of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. In a few short words, Eisenhower reminds the troops of two things. He first reminds them of the incredible, noble calling they have, the, the great role that they will play in seeking to free those who are being oppressed in Europe, to help push back this war machine. But the other, on the other side of the coin, he also reminds them of just how terrible and determined their enemy is. I think Paul, in the same way, is standing before the elders, reminding them of just how precious the church is, how it deserves their full attention, and at the same time is reminding them there is an enemy who is terrible, who is, who is determined to devour and to harm the church. And so he says to them, be alert, stay focused. So let me say to you all today what you should and must expect from myself and the other elders of HTC. First, you should expect that the elders of HTC are going to keep a close eye on themselves, meaning that we must watch our own lives, our own walks with the Lord, that we prioritize our family and our time, that we are delighting in and obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. But secondly, you must expect from us that we stand guard, protecting you. As shepherds, we stand guard against the enemy who seeks to lead you astray. The elders who stand guard are, are standing here to encourage you, to, to instruct you, to teach you all that is profitable, so that you might, like Paul, stay focused on the gospel. We are here to carry your burdens with you, to equip you to run the race in which the Lord has set before you. The existence of elders in the church is it's not some power grab uh, by, by elders or leaders in the church. It's not some organizational structure that we came up with on our own. No, it is a divinely ordered role and gift to the church. Look back at verse 28, and I want you to notice the Trinitarian elements in verse 28. We notice how the Holy Spirit and God the Father and the Son appear here. It says, the Holy Spirit has appointed the elders over the flock of God, which was obtained by the blood of the Son. There's no doubt, no question that God has appointed elders to lead his church, to oversee it, to guard and protect it. He has entrusted the care of his flock to elders. Paul would later say in uh, the letter to the Ephesians, he would write this about elder or shepherd teachers. He says they were given to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the, of the fullness of the Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craft, craftiness in deceitful schemes. It's very clear that Paul believed elders, that God has appointed elders in order to help you stay the course, to help you as you seek to follow the Lord. Your worth is not dependent upon what you've done or what you give to the church or what you've said to the elders. No, your value to us is set in concrete, to be unchanging. It's actually set in something greater than concrete. Your value is set by the blood of the Son of God. And so what I hope you hear from me today is that the elders of Holy Trinity Church love you and care for you and want you to keep 
the course, to say gospel-focused. Paul wraps up his address with just a final reminder to them of his example. And he quotes at his final quote to the church in Ephesus, or the elders of Ephesus, is a quote from Jesus that says, it's more blessed to give than to receive. So far in this last half of this, the, the text, it's been focused, the imperatives have been focused on the elders of the church, but now he says a statement, a reality, a truth, that is true for all of us. It's a truth for all of us, but it kind of runs up against everything that we believe to be true. We are so conditioned to believe that we need to measure our life by what we acquire, whether that's money, vacations, cars, homes, children, followers on social media, degrees. But what Jesus says is that it is far better to to give than to receive. It's kind of interesting that Paul would finish with that, that quote, reminding the elders as they are to set off as as shepherds of the flock, that the life that God has called them to, the, the good life that they've been called to, is a life where they give as much as they can, that they live a sacrificial life. Uh, Rebecca McLaughlin, in her book, Confronting Christianity, actually cites uh, a, few, uh, a, body, a growing body of research that's being done that talks about the benefit of living a life like this. It, even though it kind of runs up against all that we think to be true, uh, there's research that shows that volunteering contributes to mental and physical health. Helping others at work leads to improved career satisfaction. Financial giving has been tied to psychological benefits. But I know that statistics, research alone, it's not going to convince us that this is the way that we ought to live. No, what I believe will help us to live this way is seeing it lived out for ourselves. I believe that's why Paul is exhorting and reminding the elders of Ephesus his own example. He doesn't quote research or other examples. He just says, look at the life I lived among you. That's the life that you need to live in order to care for the flock among you. Gospel focus sometimes requires that you give up or give away things that you hold valuable. And it's not an easy way to live. But the elders have been given to the church to help you to do that. So to set an example to chart the path before us. It's better to finish the race than to be led astray. It's better to be focused than distracted. Paul concludes his farewell address, and here at this moment, the elders realize that this is the final goodbye. And there's tears, and we'll look back at verse 36. Feel the emotion in this moment. It says, and when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. A few years ago, I found myself in a pretty special moment down in Cuba. We were speaking about Cuba earlier, praying for Alexis and, uh, and their church during this time. And a few years ago, one of their associate pastors had announced to the church that he was going to have to, to move and, and she was, was going to be moving to Miami. And I was there for a visit where, where he was actually beginning to say goodbye to his, his team and others at the church. And we had this lunch with the other pastors and his name was Pastor Wicho. And Wicho began to share his heart with the other elders, the other pastors around the table. It was one of those moments where I, I felt privileged to be there, but almost awkward that I was there because it was such a special moment. And there was tears and there was weeping, but not tears of weakness, but tears of deep love for one another. And so these elders, these brothers, weep together at the thought that they won't see each other again. 
I just want you to notice as we conclude, though, the little phrase that's found in the end of this story. It, Luke says that they embraced Paul and kissed him. This isn't the, last, the first time that Paul has used that phrase. If we go back to the Gospel of Luke, that phrase, embraced and kissed, is actually found in another story that Jesus told, the prodigal son. The, the story of, of a boy who thought that he should deserve his inheritance before his father passed away. He demanded it and got his inheritance and left and squandered it, spent it all. And yet on his way back, or when he was destitute, he comes back to his father's house. And while he was a long way off, the father sees him. And it says he ran to him and embraced him and kissed him. It's interesting here that Paul uses that same phrase once in a story that Jesus told about a homecoming and an embracing. And then here in this story where there's a goodbye. To you and I, as I call you today as a church to, to stay focused on the gospel, and that means it's going to require us to say goodbye to things. The only way that that's going to be viable for us, the only way that that's going to make sense to us, the only way that I feel like I'm going to get us to do that is if we are swimming in an ocean of God's extravagant grace. That parable is a, a parable teaching us that God is a God who gives and gives and gives, that he is a God who has said goodbye to so much for us. That for us to let go, we need to encounter the embrace of a loving father. That upon receiving that embrace, we might feel our grip on the things of this earth begin to release. That Holy Trinity Church gospel focus requires us to sometimes say goodbye to things. But for the sake of the gospel, it is so worth it. Would you pray with me? Our gracious and loving Father, we come before you thanking you for the great gift, the great mercy, the great love in which you've shown us. You have loved us extravagantly. One might even say recklessly. And so, Father, because of the gospel, because of the meaning and the hope and the purpose we have and we find in the gospel, Lord, would you help us to loosen our grip on the things of this earth, the things that we hold, the idols that we hold too tightly. Father, for the sake of the gospel, for the glory of your Son, we pray. Amen.